When I first discovered Valerie Kaur, I cried. I cried watching her six-minute video that went viral and garnered over 40 million views. I cried reading her book, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. And I cried in our conversation multiple times as she shared her wisdom, heart, and passion. Valerie is a seasoned civil rights activist and celebrated prophetic voice at the forefront of progressive change. She leads the Revolutionary Love Project to, quote, reclaim love as a force for justice in America, end quote. She is a lawyer, filmmaker, and innovator who has been a regular TV commentator on MSNBC and contributor to CNN, NPR, PBS, The Hill, Huffington Post, and The Washington Post. She is the daughter of sick farmers from California's heartland and the author of See No Stranger. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn, your host, and you're listening to Beyond, in-depth explorations into the ideas, the philosophy, and the paths taken by brave and experimental artists and makers who have found the courage to forge a new way forward and use their creativity to make their thing and change their world. Some things Valerie and I talk about are hearing her first racial slur, the revolutionary power of love, the voice of the little critic and the power of the wise woman, deep listening as an act of freedom, grief as a way to know each other, and the labor of the revolution. This conversation is one of my favorites from the series Art, Activism, and the Great Unknown. But before we dive into the conversation, I want to let you know about something I share with my community every week. It's the best of what I have for those wild enough to make their own art and live their own life. It's resources, art workshops, artist talks, podcast conversations, best books, articles, latest happenings, all of it. And you can get it by signing up over at DaphneCone.com. Now, on to the show. May it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Welcome, Valerie. It is so wonderful to have you. I'm so delighted to be here with you. The, the first question I have is more about your childhood, and, and we won't actually spend much time there at all, but I do want to ground us in that. And you grew up as a brown girl of Indian descent and of the Sikh religion in a white Christian farming community. So my question around that is how were the seeds of art and activism planted in that community? Oh, I can just close my eyes right now and see the night sky just shimmering with stars. I grew up in the country and so there was uh, not so much light pollution back then. And I remember falling in love with the stars and the horses across the fence and the cows across the road and the farmland that spread on all sides of us. I grew up on the land that my grandfather had farmed when he arrived in California at the turn of the century in 1913. So my first orientation to the world was a sense of wonder, a sense of awe that there was no question back then that I was part of everything around me. I think all of us can remember just a sliver, at least from childhood, that deep sense of interconnectedness. And I grew up with the stories of my grandfather. So he would tell me, it was my mother's father who 
uh, grew up with us. My father's father was the pioneer who came and began our family story in America, sailed by steamship from India to California. It was my mother's father, though, who who co-raised me with my parents. And if my, if my if one grandma, grandfather tied me to the land and tied me to what it felt like to belong to the land and belong to America, then it was my other grandfather who would scoop me up and tell me stories of my sick ancestors and my sick lineage. And my favorite story was always the story of Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh faith. Um, the story goes, 500 years ago, he disappeared by a river for three days. He was so distraught by the violence around him, the endless turmoil around him, that he disappeared and sat in contemplation until a vision struck him. And he emerged on that third day with this vision of unity, this vision of oneness, ik on God, oneness of humanity and the oneness of the world. He felt as though he could look upon the face of anyone or anything and say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. You are a part of me I do not yet know. So Daphne, that was my, my earliest childhood memories, this sense of belonging, this sense of wonder, the sense of interconnectedness with everything around me, the divine around me and the divine inside of me. Okay, you mentioned just now and, and then a little earlier in that story. I love that story. I, um, but you mentioned a sense of wonder and I've thought a lot about wonder and, and because we lose it often as adults. And one of the things you talk about around wonder is you say wonder is the wellspring of love. You don't have to be religious to open to wonder. You only have to reclaim a sliver of what you once knew as a child. If you remember how to wonder, then you already have what you need to learn how to love. So this seems like a perfect way to segue into the revolutionary love, which we'll get to in a minute. But this idea of wonder and the importance of it, I'd like you to speak about the importance of it. And I know you say that if you remember how to wonder, you already have what you need to learn how to love. And I still feel like there are things to learn about how we cultivate wonder as adults. Mm. So, yeah. You know, now I'm, I'm a mother to two small children. I have a five-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter. And in order to love them well, I have to wonder about them every single day. <laughs> Their needs yeah. change so fast. And in order to love them well, I have to figure out, okay, what does he need now? What does he want now? What does she need now? What does she want now? wonder becomes a daily practice. It's almost as if that same kind of wondering I experience looking up at that night sky, I have to wonder at them. <laughs> I have to imagine that their interiority is just as inexhaustible, just as wondrous, um, just as uh, filled with, with mystery as, as that night sky. And in order to labor for them, I have to listen closely to what they need, what they want. I, I think about how we often mistake in this country uh, love as simply a flood of emotion, you know, a rush of feeling. We think about falling in love, like we're falling into a jar of honey. And I, it is a delicious feeling to fall in love. But when we think about the kind of love that sustains caregiving, anyone who's cared for small children or parents or, or, or friends who are ill you know <laughs> that love is more than a single feeling. You know, love is sweet labor. It is fierce and 
bloody and imperfect and life-giving. It, it is a choice that you have to make again and again and again. And, and if love is a form of labor, then it contains all of the emotions, right? Joy is the gift of love. Grief, sorrow is the price of love. Rage, rage is the force that protects that which is loved. And when we think we have reached our limit, wonder is what returns us to love. And that's why I call wonder the wellspring of love. If we can remember how to, if we can practice how to cultivate wonder, not just for our children or for the, um, the, the animals or the earth around us, but even for others who do not look like us, those who are in harm's way, even for our opponents, and that's really hard and we can talk about that, yeah. and for ourselves who we too often neglect, then I believe that, that love can become revolutionary. It can actually create political, social, spiritual transformation. Yeah, I do want to talk about loving our opponents. And I know we're going to skip around a little bit because I forgot to mention this in the beginning, but pretty much all of this, all of our conversation comes from Valerie's book, See No Stranger. And I'll talk more about that, but I, I will be jumping around a little of all that's covered in it. And I feel right now this idea of, yeah, this part of love that is the rage, the force that protects the love, which feels very present in our culture right now in our, in the United States, even in the world in a lot of ways, I have a lot of trouble with linking the rage and the love. You know, growing up as a, let's go back to the, those childhood days, (laughs) growing up as a little brown girl in a mostly white and Christian community, very quickly, I was confronted with people who um, who could not wonder about me, who made assumptions about me that um, I was uh, dark and therefore black and therefore um, disgusting in their eyes, or that I was not Christian or and therefore unsaved and therefore would go to hell. And I remember as a little girl um, really wrestling with how to respond. I was sort of conditioned to suppress my rage, suppress my anger in the name of love and forgiveness. And it took me a really long time. You know, I, I, I had digested the, the lie that the opposite of love was rage. And it took me a very long time to learn that the op- opposite of love is not rage. It is indifference. And if we think about love as labor, then we need to harness our anger. We need to experience the depth of our rage in order to protect that which we love, including if it's our own self, our own bodies. There's a segment I'll read from the book in the chapter called Rage. Neurobiologists call oxytocin the love hormone. The more oxytocin in the body, the more care and nurturing mammals show for their babies. Oxytocin decreases aggression in a mother's body overall, with one exception, in defense of her young. When babies are threatened, oxytocin actually increases aggression. You see, rage is part of love. It is the biological force that protects that which is loved. I didn't learn this until I saw, I could, I could see, um, there's a story in, in the book where I 
talk about breaking my silence around a sexual assault. And it was my mother who stood up with fire in her eyes and defended me as I broke my silence. And I had never seen that kind of rage roaring inside of her. She was finally teaching me how to access my rage as a way to fight for my own beloved body that I was worth fighting for, that my life was worth fighting for. And so I think that the task that we have in our country right now and in our lives right now, and so many of us are breaking the silence around sexual violence or racial injustice, is to work with our rage, to harness our rage, to dance with our rage. I think about it as releasing raw rage in safe containers, you know, weeping, uh, shaking, sweating, running, um, doing rituals, doing trauma therapies of all kinds. I think about how to release rage in safe containers so then we can harness it uh, as a force for creative work in the world. I think of divine rage <laughs> as what we're seeing right now in the Black Lives Matter movement, divine rage. So the, the aim of divine rage is not vengeance. It is to reorder the world. And that's the kind of force that, that makes love revolutionary. So it's being with the rage in a very private, it sounds like in a more private personal setting. And so that when you go out into the world, it's not that the rage is no longer there, but that like, are, are you using the energy differently? I mean, this is the thing that confuses me. It's did the, the rage is still there. And yet somehow we want to go out into the world and, and not create more of the anger that we feel, or maybe we do. I can see that it's confusing. Yes. And this is where I think of it as a dance that when we release our rage, when we give it some form of expression on the outside of us, then we can be in relationship with it. We can ask ourselves, what information does my rage carry? What is it telling me? How do I want to harness that energy? And once we become, um, uh, once we listen to our rage, Audre Lorde calls it like listening to a symphony. Once we listen to our rage, she says to listen to its rhythms, to learn within it, to move beyond the manner of presentation to the substance, to tap that anger, then it can become an important source of empowerment. So this is where it becomes a kind of dance for me to release my raw rage in a safe container. And this sometimes means like I, I, I'll go into the closet and I will rage. I will throw, I will throw objects to the ground you know, in a way that is uh, keeping myself safe and others safe, but I will give it some form of expression. I finally learned how to do that. And then when I emerge, when I've, been, when I've had that release, and then I can ask myself, well, what, what information am I gaining from this? What matters to me? What do I need to fight for? How do I retain that ferocity in a disciplined and exact way when I show up in public and fight for what I believe? I, I, I think of the, um, the goddess Durga in Hindu tradition, how the story about Durga is that all of this rage was focused uh, in her forehead and projected out into the world in the form of Kali, the fiercest form of the goddess Durga. And Kali is clad in, the, in tiger skin. She, her mouth is agape. Her tongue is, is rolling out as she drinks the blood of life. Like she is fierce. She is, um, she is frightening. And she is the divine mother to be revered and to be loved because she protects us. And so 
thinking about Kali and thinking about all of these examples of divine rage, thinking about the, the fury of Jesus when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple and Christian scriptures. I mean, all of we are, we've inherited these stories of divine rage. What does it mean for us to think about our own rage as animal and divine, to be, to, to be able to show up in the world with that kind of divine rage? Oh, that, that means to be able to, um, experience the fullness of of our power and our call for justice and i love that our animal and divine like we are both so the rage just like you said with the mom the oxytocin turns into the rage which i have experienced um in needing to protect um that that is that animal in us but that it can meet the divine in us that then makes change with fueled by that in part by the rage. Yes. And, and I think, I really think about black feminists who have been my teachers in this. It was really learning from uh, thinkers like Audre Lorde and, and, and Bell Hooks. Uh, Bell Hooks says, you know, we learned when we were very little that black people could die from feeling rage and expressing it to the wrong white folks. We learn to choke down our rage. And we know that repressing anger comes at a cost, right? It, it, it results in um, high rates of autoimmune diseases. It amplifies our, our, amplifies our perception of physical pain. And so just as repression is dangerous, so too is exploding our rage, right? So many men and boys in our culture have been taught to equate their expressions of wild reactionary rage as machismo or as their sense of, of, of value or success. And the solution is neither, right? It's neither repression or explosion. It's uh, re- processing rage in those safe containers so that we can harness harness it and use it creatively in the work that we wish to do in the world. That's why I like to think of it like a dance. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that I'm asking so many questions about it is because your work specifically, Valerie, is about love. It's revolutionary love. And, and because rage one is a part of that, but often too, because love is one of those tricky words. And I know you already went into some of it. It's one of those tricky words when used around activism, because we can get confused and think that love means acceptance and love means forgiveness without necessarily creating the world that we want to live in. Oh, I'm with you, Daphne. I, you know, I'm trained as a lawyer. So anytime people said love is the answer in public, I would be the one to roll my eyes. (laughs) <laughs> I was the one cringing. Um, anytime, all I heard was like thoughts and prayers without any concerted action or any real strategies for, for taking on and dismantling institutions of power and reimagining institutions of power in our country. I, I dismissed love. And it really wasn't until after becoming, after becoming a mother, I remember... I remember that moment my son was placed on my chest and I was sort of shaking and sobbing from that rush of feeling. I said, oh, I'm falling in love. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was my mother who was next to me who was getting busy opening up her bag and pulling out her doll and chol and feeding her baby, like feeding her baby while she was, I was feeding my baby. And I looked at my mother and I thought, oh, she has never stopped laboring for me. From from my birth to my son's birth to my daughter's birth, 
that kind of labor, that kind of consistent showing up to the labor is powerful. It is durable. And if we harness that kind of love in our movements and in our communities and in the work of remaking our nation, then we will last. Yeah. That's why, that's why I believe that, that so many of, of us right now, especially I see women of color leading right now in our movements for racial justice, are reclaiming love as a force for justice in a new time. And this book, See No Stranger, is my, my contribution to that work. Yeah, it's such a powerful contribution. One of the other things that you had talked about in the growing up, so I actually don't remember exactly at what point in your life you were speaking when you, when you shared this, but you said, I'd fallen for the great bribe of white supremacy, the promise of acceptance for people of color who put down other people of color. Uh, I want you to speak to that a little bit about this, what happens. We all fall for the great bribe of white supremacy in one way or another, unless it is not a viable option. Like it, unless we are the victims, the, the obvious victims of white supremacy, if we're black, but even so, even within that, there are ways that oppression happens internally from that, um, where we are wanting to somehow fit into this world that is held up to us as the one to aspire to the ideal. And so what did that look like for you, this, this bribe of white supremacy? And how did you begin to shift that and own your own beauty and your own power? You know, I talked about those early, early memories in my childhood of just endless wonder on all sides of me. That enchantment was broken when I heard my first racial slur, I was six years old in the schoolyard when a little boy called me a black dog. And I was so confused. I wanted him to know that, no, I was on my knees because I was playing a baby, not a dog, but his mouth was cruel and he was so certain and he wasn't expecting anything but compliance. He wanted, he said, get up, get up, you black dog. And, and I got up. It was as if I was seeing myself through, through a mirror that I had never seen before. I had never seen myself from his angle from before. It, and, and once again, my reaction wasn't rage. I mean, that came so much later in my life. It was confusion and it was shame. I felt so ashamed. And that happened uh, again and again and again in my childhood. First, it was uh, the racial slurs and then it was the attempts to convert me to Christianity. And for me, the racial injustice and the religious bigotry were intertwined, just as white supremacy and Christian supremacy in this country are intertwined. That's how I experienced it in, in my life as a girl. And that shame deepened um, and, and felt like burning under the skin. When I, when the, book, the name of the book is See No Stranger. And it, these are the words of Guru Nanak, Nakoberi Neibagana. I see no enemy. I see no stranger. But so many of us who are people of color live in a country that wants to make us strange to ourselves. It, it felt like I had once remembered what it felt like to be at home in my body and at home in the world. But as soon as that shame coming from 
the violence of those words entered my bloodstream, I felt lost. And I think that I, they define that now as internalized oppression. And so many of us have different ways of coping with it. And one is to become like our oppressors, <laughs> to say, no, no, I, I am like you. I'm actually not black. I'm brown. And therefore, I'm closer to white. Or no, 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 yes, I'm Indian, but not, not the Native American kind. No, no, I, I, I'm from India. And somehow that makes me closer to you. <laughs> or, um, oh, or, or to be a Sikh, right, is to say, I'm not Hindu. I don't worship many gods. I worship one just like you. I just tried to employ all of these strategies to make me palatable, to make me legible to people who could not read me. Um, who could not see me anything other, other than strange to them. And so it, I think that's the, the trap that so many of us fall into. And it's also, it gave rise to a voice in my consciousness, which I came much later in my life, I came to call this voice little critic. <laughs> because of course, all of, those, all of those attempts always failed, right? <laughs> no matter how white you want to make yourself seem, you, are, you will always be a little brown girl in a sick uh, in in, in um, carrying uh, sikhi in your blood, you will you will not be them, and so uh, all those attempts failed over and over again. And there was a voice that rose in my consciousness that I that I call the little critic, <laughs> and the little critic would always tell me, "Oh, you're you're not good enough, you're not fair enough, you're not white enough, you're not American enough, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, you're not enough." And it took me so long to understand that there was a different voice in me too, that it was the voice projected into me by my grandfather who saw me as a daughter of Guru Nanak, as a daughter who had the ability to walk the path of a revolutionary kind of love. He saw me as a warrior. I remember that night when I came home from school after that first racial slur, he would scoop me up in his arms, my grandfather, who I called Papaji, and he would say, oh, my dear, don't abandon your post. Um, don't abandon your post. The ideal in the Sikh faith is the Santh Sapai, the sage warrior or the warrior sage. The warrior fights, the sage loves. Mm -hmm. This is revolutionary love. He said, all of those people who are trying to hurt you, what does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean to love them? Love is dangerous business, Papaji would say. Love is dangerous business. He would put his finger in the air and say, love is dangerous business. Because if I choose to love, if I choose to see you as a part of me, I do not yet know that I must wonder about you, even if you refuse to wonder about me. I must fight for you when you are in harm's way. I must refuse to hate you, even if the only thing you want to do is to hate me. And that is a revolutionary kind of love. He told me that I was brave enough, that I was brave enough. And it took me many years to cultivate that voice in me that, oh, my love, you, you are brave enough to keep showing up and to keep walking this path in a culture that wants to kill you. Okay. There's, so one of the things I want to just repeat back because it was so beautiful legible to people who could not see me. You wanted to make yourself legible to people who could not see me. That is just, ah, uh, it goes right to the heart. And it's, that is what it means. So much of the struggle of being human, I think. And, and then even more deeply in such a racist culture as the one that we live in. 
but and then this other piece of being brave enough to be both the warrior and the lover like that that is a a type of bravery putting love in that category of bravery and that it that's just um don't know that I have a question there unless you want to say more about that but I just think to hold love as an act of courage is a beautiful way to be with it mm. um and the other thing was you talked about the little critic and one thing that was interesting was you had said about my little critic that got the most riled up right before I was about to put my art or voice into the world. They're going to eat you alive is what, what it would say and how to hear your wise woman. You have to, oh, so then we're talking about how to hear your wise woman. You have to get really quiet. But I thought what was fascinating because this is about art and activism that your little critic was louder, loudest in putting either your art or voice into the world. So when that little critic rises up around something so vulnerable as sharing a part of who you are, how have you learned to, to meet that little critic and transform it? <laughs> I remember the first time I became really aware of this was in the days before my, um, my Ted talk was about to be posted and it was a Ted talk about revolutionary love and, and here, this little critic, really, I, I pictured him as like a, as a fat bird <laughs> with ragged wings. It would squawk in my ear. It would fly around my head and squawk in my ear. And he was saying the same things. Oh, you're, you're a lawyer and you're talking about love. No one's going to take you seriously. They're going to eat you alive. And I said it was my birthday um, on the day that the, the week the, the TED Talk was about to drop. So I said, okay, as a birthday gift to myself, I'm going to banish this little critic. And I got even violent in my imagery. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to drown him. I'm going to, like, I was just, I was so done. And I wanted to be really brave in, in doing something radical. And it was, I call her the wise woman in me. The wise woman in me said, oh, my love, you, you, you need this little guy. He is a part of you right? You are a part of me. I do not yet know. <laughs> he is a part of you. We just don't need him in charge. <laughs> yeah. And so she took up, took the little critic up into her arms and just, and soothed him. And I thought, oh, there's a throne in my mind. The th uh, and there's been a power struggle raging in me between the little critic and the wise woman in me for all of my life. And I simply need to put the wise woman on the throne and to be faithful to her for all of my days. And so let the little critic squawk, let him come and say what he will honor him, listen to him, let him speak. And then, and then because what he is saying is just this out of the sense of wanting to protect me. I mean, if he began to appear after my first racial slur, it was him gathering information that this world is dangerous for little brown girls. And so you better keep your, yourself small. You better not exercise your voice. You better not break your silence. You better not put your art into the world because they will eat you alive because it is not safe. And the little critic is right <laughs> that it's not safe. It's just that his solution was all wrong. <laughs> the solution mm -hmm. is not to get small. The solution is more solidarity is to join with other artists and activists and wise women who are being brave together. And I have finally found a way to put the wise woman 
on the throne. I created Daphne. I created a wedding ceremony for myself. Love that. I, well, I need to do something really, really big. And so I remember I did the, there are four um, circles for lava that you take in the sick wedding ceremony. And I took those circles and I made those vows and I vowed to be faithful to wise woman for the rest of my days. And I came home and I told my husband, I was worried because you know, you're married <laughs> twice. And, and my husband said, oh, thank God. <laughs> Wise woman makes my job so much easier. <laughs> but that too is an act of revolutionary love. Because you're rising up against something that has been really placed in you over and over again, not just by yourself, but by the culture that you live in as a way of keeping you small. And then you're saying, no, I am bigger than that. And I will claim that and I will rise above that. And then I will let myself be led by my wise woman. I think this is the moment for wise women, plural, to lead. I, I think that you know, one wise woman rising is transformation but thousands of wise women rising together, millions. That's revolution. And as dark and as uncertain and as filled with grief and terror and rage and violence as this moment is in our nation's history, it is also a revolutionary moment that I never thought I would see in my lifetime of so many people letting themselves being led by their deepest wisdom, people who have been long oppressed in this country, letting themselves be led by their deepest wisdom. So many wise women imagining the nation that could be, and the nation that we might be able to birth together out of this moment. That, that is what I'm holding fast to. Yes. And one of the things you talk a lot about as part of this, as part of the birth and as part of the love, like you say, grief is part of the price is the price we pay for the love and the way you speak about grief really woke like shifted something in me it was very dramatic because i had never thought about grief this way but one thing is you said um the past keeps bleeding into the present no civilization is exempt but what is particular to America is that many who suffered enormous loss and destruction have had to do so alone, had to marshal language to tell the story, only to find that there was no one to hear it because their suffering contradicts the story that the nation keeps telling itself, the story of American exceptionalism. Our story doesn't allow us to confront our past with open eyes, uh, to confront our past with open eyes, cannot see the suffering it has caused, suffering that persists into the present. A nation that cannot see our suffering cannot grieve with us. A nation that cannot grieve with us cannot know us and therefore cannot love us. So to see grief, a grieving together, to acknowledge it, to acknowledge the suffering, to acknowledge all of the violence, to acknowledge the past, and then to grieve together as a way of knowing each other and then loving each other. I, that's so beautiful. So I know I just read this long quote, but I would love for you to say more about your particular, like how you came to this understanding of grief as a way, as such an important component of knowing each other and then 
loving each other so that we can change things together. The first person who was killed in a hate crime after September 11th was a family friend, Bobir Singh Sodi, who I called Bobir Uncle. He was a, a sick father who wore a turban like my grandfather's. He was standing in front of his gas station in Arizona when he was shot by a man who called himself a patriot. I was 20 years old and his murder made me an activist. I was planning to become a professor of religion. That was my dream. And becoming an activist was a matter of, of, of life and death. I didn't know how many more people, how many of more people in my family, in my community would be killed. And so I um, remember grabbing my camera and traveling across the country after 9-11 and capturing stories of, of hate violence in the Sikh community with the, the hope that if, just, if I could just tell the story, if we could tell the story, um, then the violence would end. And very soon, I remember feeling like the camera spun on me and my cousin, who wears a turban. People told us to go home, to go back to our country. And I was feeling the kind of bitterness spread inside of me. And there was la one last interview I had to do I, I knew that I had to talk to the widow of Bulbir Uncle who lived in India. And I traveled across the world and arrived in Punjab, traveled through those fields and in those fields of a village and in front of one of the villages, a home. And, and there she was standing in front of this doorway, this, her silhouette. I still remember she was dressed in white, the color of mourning in our tradition. And she just could not stop weeping. And I had just one question to, to ask her. I, I threw away my list of questions. They just felt dumb in my hands. So I just asked her one question. I said, what would you like to tell the people of America? And, oh, truly, Daphne, I was expecting, you know, the same bitterness I was beginning to feel in my body. And she said, thank you. Thank you. When I came to Mesa for my husband's funeral, they came out in the thousands, 3,000 people came to weep with me and to care for me and to grieve with me and to love me. Tell them thank you for loving me. And I finally saw what I couldn't see then, that 3,000 people had come to Bobir Uncle's memorial, not because they knew him, but because they heard enough of his story to see him not as a stranger, but as a brother. And that shared grieving was the bomb that this widow needed to keep living, to keep going. And that shared grieving yielded shared organizing that followed with the Sodi family. It's been almost 20 years, and the Sodi family is still organizing against hate violence with many of those people who first came to grieve with them all those years ago. First, we grieve together, and then we organize together. You see, you grieve with people not because you know them. You grieve with people in order to know them. And yes, yes, I mean, America does not know how to grieve the lives of people of color because our lives have not mattered. Black lives have not mattered to this country as a whole. And yet there have always been people who did what the nation as a whole did not. And so I'll, I'll read further on in the chapter. 
They crossed the line and took the hand of someone who did not look like them and wept with them as if to say, you are grieving, but you do not grieve alone. This is not the dominant narrative of American history, but every great social movement was rooted in the solidarity that came from shared grieving. There were always people who rushed to bury the dead, to cut down the lynching news, to attend the memorials, who said, not in my name. When people who have no obvious reason to love each other come together to grieve, they can give birth to new relationships, even revolutions. And Daphne, that is why I believe that this moment we are in is a revolutionary moment because people could see the videos of police killings for so many years and make up excuses. Oh, he shouldn't have said that. Oh, he shouldn't have run. Oh, it looked like he had a gun. And they saw the video of George Floyd dying in front of, his, in front of their eyes, a knee to a neck, not one minute, not three minutes, not five minutes, but for eight minutes, they witnessed, we witnessed as a whole, a public lynching. And there was no alternative story one could tell about it, except for the fact that black lives have not mattered, that black people have been treated as disposable. And to see so many millions of people, white people and non-black people of color wake up and see George Floyd, not as a criminal, or as a delinquent, or as a stranger, but as a brother. Revolutionary love is to be brave enough to see George Floyd as our brother, Breonna Taylor as our sister, Rayshard Brooks as brother, to see them as brothers and sisters and siblings means to be able to be brave enough to grieve their lives. And to see so many millions of people flooding the streets, risking their own lives during a, during a global pandemic, to grieve and to rage, and to demand justice. That's why I feel like so much immense power has been released in our shared grieving. And the question, of course, is how do we stay? All the millions of people who have just woken up, you know, how do we stay in the labor? I want you to stay in the labor, right? The choice you have to keep making. It's not just this month or now to November. No, it's this is generational work. And so I am putting the book in the hands of people who want to stay in the labor. There are practices for how to stay. And we stay in the labor when we continue to root our advocacy and our choices in love. Yeah, actually, can you... I'd like you to say a little more about that. And I'd also like you to say a little about this idea of this question that often comes up of, you know, what, how can I, what can I do? How can I help? And and you talk about that specifically around, it's not, you don't have to know what to do as much as being ready. So talk about what it looks like to be getting ready and staying ready for when the universe says now. Shortly before this pandemic, um, my son, who was four years old at the time, was coming home from a concert in the park. He was riding on the shoulders of my father when he heard his, his first racial slur. So I heard my first when I was six, and my son heard the words, go back to your country when he was four. And my father, who was hard of hearing, could not hear what the woman had said. And so it was my son who had to tell my father what he had said. And when they came home, my parents were shaken. And I asked, well, didn't anyone say anything when that woman said that to you? And they said, no, 
Just like last time when the slur was suicide bomber and the time before that when it was sand nigger, there was a group of people who watched this happen, but they remained bystanders. And I thought about that woman who had turned around and looked at my father. He, she had only to reach for the words in the air. Like she was primed just to find the words in the air and to throw it almost as if it was an arrow at my father's heart. How, how can the rest of us be just as ready, just as primed to stand up and to intervene when someone we, um, we know is in harm's way needs us? And I think about that readiness and, that, and that what it means to be primed. And if so many in this country right now, because the go back to your country is on the words of the, is in the, is in the mouth of the president of the United States. So he has primed us all to act on our darkest impulses. And so what does that mean for the rest of us who want to be led not by our inner critics, but by our deepest wisdom? It means to train and to practice and to begin where you are. And to begin with where you are, not knowing all the answers, not even knowing what may come next. It's just a matter of showing up where you are and how you are in your community, in your family, in your house of worship, with your workplace, with your people. Um, I think each of us has a specific role in the labor of birthing a new nation, an anti-racist nation. And the only way we can do it is if we understand that the political is personal and the personal is political. And so there's no distinction between the two. You begin with your own sphere of influence. You stand ready. And then you do the courageous thing that you haven't done before. And that will lead to the next and the next and the next. I think one of the thing that you said there, Valerie, that really stood out is this idea of having the words in the air. Because I think a lot of times the work feels like like um, I need to always be in the action. I need to be in the doing. And that, of course, is very important. And to have those words in the air means it's a constant cultivation, which isn't always in the doing of or being out there in the world. A lot of it can be reading, like see no stranger, listening to things, unlearning things. All that is changing the words that are that will then be available when you need them and changing the whole way of being that we that's need. it yeah go on no that's it that's it um i feel like so, so many people now are ready to be anti-racists and they are holding on to those words as if you know it is a belief that you simply hold in your mind but what is required is more than and a, a, a kind of a desperate leaning to try to say the right things and try to do the perfect things and try to show up in the right ways, so that actually is exhausting and not sustainable and is only surfacial. That what's actually required is to integrate that into an orientation to life, into your emotional body, so that it is a way of being in the world, a way of moving through the world. If you are seeing no stranger, if you orient to everything around you as a part of you that you do not yet know, if you choose to move through the world with this kind of vision and this kind of commitment, then there is no way to be anything other than anti-racist. 
It comes spontaneously in the moments when you are needed, not just in a, a slur um, during a slur on the street, but in 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 the um, in the polling places during the election season, in the policies that you vote for, in the places that you donate, and the elected officials you put into office. It becomes a way of discerning who is creating the world that you want to see, where no person is disposable, and who is trying to um, perpetuate the injustices that give them profit and, and run the world as it is. So if we think of it as a way of being in the world and we think uh, as a way to cultivate moving through the world, then it requires um, us to be brave enough to transition ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So actually I'll go back a little bit because I skipped over this, but when you talked about being brave enough to transition ourselves and, and then how you thought you were going to be a professor of religion and then picked up your camera and got you know, your cousin, Sunny, the two of you just started to drive across the country to, to capture these stories. You put what you took, what was so important and you poured it into this form of art filmmaking and, and turned it into both the art and the activism. And what happened as a result of making that film? And the film is uh, divided. We fall America in the aftermath. It was my first film and we spent a good part of my mid twenties going from city to city, campus to campus showing the film and I remember at first thinking that I am showing this film so that others could could be awakened and um and become our allies <laughs> and hear our stories and that did happen but what I did not expect was after every screening I would have a line of people who then would tell me their stories uh, they were queer people or undocumented people or black people or indigenous people. And they were waking me up to the fact that my struggle for liberation and safety and dignity in this country was bound up with their own, that it is part of one broader struggle for, for liberation um, in this, in this nation. And so then I knew that I spent the next stretch of years um, kind of adding to my activist toolkit. Um, so filmmaking, lawyering and organizing and writing and speaking became part of that toolkit. And I went from community to community. I worked with black and brown and indigenous communities on a variety of causes and learned so much from people who are at the front lines of fighting for justice in this country, learned so much. And um, I, I have seen that when people, I always thought that, oh, it was my film or our lawsuit that would make the difference. But truly, it, whether change was achieved always depended on this question of like, is, is there love here? Are people practicing love here? Are they receiving love in the wake of atrocity? Are they battling their opponents with this ethic of love? Are they loving themselves in the process? And so writing this book in a way was consolidating all of the wisdom that I witnessed in the communities that I had served, as well as the wisdom that I had inherited from my own community. And okay, so there's something I, I have to read because this comes, 
like what you were just talking about is that all like you're listening to all these stories and then you share the stories and, and you think it's okay, we're going to be inviting people to be allies. And then you hear their stories and it changes you. And, and so there's this quote I wrote down and I have it starred and circled because I really wanted to make sure I got to it, which <laughs> is deep listening is about drawing close to someone's story how do we listen to someone when their beliefs are disgusting or enraging or terrifying? In these moments, we can choose to remember that the goal of listening is not to feel empathy for our opponents or validate their ideas or even change their mind in the moment. Our goal is to understand them. And then at another point you say, and this is the, this is the part I want to get to, listening does not grant the other side legitimacy. It grants them humanity and preserves our own. And I think Ah, to just remember that, that this power of listening, whether it's listening to the stories of those whose voices we want to have be more out there in the world, have be heard so that we can come to know each other more deeply, love each other and fight for each other, or it's the people we feel we're fighting against and we listen to them as you say so beautifully because it grants them humanity and it preserves our own. And we forget that about listening. Can you, is there more that you'd like to say about the power of listening as this transformative tool of action? It is among the hardest labors I have ever experienced. Listening to white supremacists or soldiers at Guantanamo or prison guards at a supermax prison, or my own former abusers in my own life. All of those stories are in the book. And every time, every impulse in me just wants to run, wants to retreat, or wants to shake them or hurt them. <laughs> like I, I, it takes a discipline to sit and to continue to listen. And it, also, it always comes down to that one fundamental primary act, which is to wonder about them, to ask why. I don't have to feel anything for them. The feelings will come and go. They will ebb and flow. Maybe empathy will come. Maybe will compassion will come. Maybe it won't. The practice that I have to focus on is the, is the, is the cultivation of wonder to say to myself, you have a story and I need to hear it. And every single yeah. time, every single time I've done that, beneath the slogans and the sound bites, when I start to hear my opponent's story, every time I begin to feel their pain and I begin to see the wound in them, that in my life, I believe that there are no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are deeply wounded who hurt other people out of a sense of insecurity or anxiety or their own little critics or blindness or greed, but whatever it is, their participation in oppression, it comes at a cost to them. It shrinks their own capacity to love. And once I see my opponents, not as monsters, but as wounded, then I can discern whether it is my role to tend the wound in them. And, and even if it's not, 
I gather some information about what radicalizes them or what authorizes them to hurt me. You see, see, loving our opponents, for me, it's, it's not just moral. It is also strategic. It is pragmatic. It's how I gain the information I need to be a better activist, to be a smarter activist. Because at the end of the day, I want to hold up a vision of a nation that includes even my opponents. Yeah, and that piece, because I think a lot of times that I can speak for myself, I'll feel like, oh, but I don't want to give that person voice. So I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to keep talking. I'm going to, I'm trying to convince them. And of course, you never get anywhere with that. But, right. but that fear that somehow listening to their story or just listening, there's a fear there that they will triumph in the act of l- the other person listening, like I feel that fear in my body. And, and what I hear you saying is that's when you come back to wonder. Yes. Yes. You make the active conscious choice to ask why, to wonder why. Okay. There's just one or two things I'll bring up before we get to the last part of the interview. This I feel is just, you, you kind of touched on it. And I think it's really important because it comes up over and over. So you say, did people of color have to be perfect in order for our lives to be grievable? I marveled at the labor it took to prove our humanity. It seemed like we had to be superhuman in order to be seen as human. But looking back at history, even that has not been enough. And the reason I bring that up is because that is so often that comes up all the time. Well, but was that person doing this or, oh, they were selling drugs or they were doing, and it's becomes this, we, we then have a tool for judging the value of a life. And we do it, especially as a white person, we do it, especially with people of color. And so can you just, um, I just want you to talk to like the danger of that, of that constant qualifying. I think that for a person of color to be seen as a human being, it shouldn't take for us to be superhuman. or perfect. For our lives to be grievable, we shouldn't have to have lived as saints. And in fact, if you see us as sisters and brothers and siblings who are imperfect, who are complex, who are multidimensional, if you are already seeing us that way, then you would never need to put that burden on us in order to grieve us or love us. And that's where it comes back to that, you know, orientation to life and to one another. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. I do want to go back to something, yeah. um, back to the opponent's piece. I feel like this is really, really important to say right now is that everyone has a different role in the labor at any given time. At this moment, when so many black people and people of color have a knee on their neck, it is not the moment necessarily for us to look up into the eyes of our oppressors and wonder about them. 
Our job is to stay alive. Our job is to take the next breath. Our job is to survive. Our job is to find a way to keep our families and our bodies and our communities safe. Our job is to find a way to let joy into our lives, even in a moment as dark as this, so that we can keep going. Loving ourselves in this climate is the revolutionary act. But if you find yourself safe enough by virtue of the color of your skin or whatever else, in order to, if you find yourself safe enough to sit down with those opponents that I cannot sit down with right now and listen to them, then you have a very vital role to play. We need someone to tend the wounds of people who feel disaffected in this country. At this moment, I, I cannot sit with Trump supporters. I've sat with a lot of people in my life, but I am so activated in this moment. I'm trying to keep my family safe in this moment. I am struggling and worried about the safety of my community in this moment, but I can't do that labor. But I, I know others who can. I think of Sister Simone Campbell of, of Nuns on the Bus, this Catholic nun who has done these beautiful listening tours across the country and sat with this disaffected white people and listened to their grief unresolved grief. They are grieving the notion that this nation ever belonged to them in the first place. I don't think it's legitimate grief. <laughs> I wish that they didn't have to work through that grief and let it manifest as so much aggression and so much white supremacist violence. But if someone doesn't sit with them and tend to their wounds and help them transition, oh, then we are all lost. I am so invested in unseating this president in November, but I am more invested in changing the conditions that put him into office in the first place. And those conditions will not disappear the day after the election. If we are really going to transition our nation, then it takes all of us to do our part in the labor. And so I, I am really hopeful when I see so many white people right now having those hard conversations with people that wouldn't listen to me or who I couldn't sit with, with their family members or their coworkers or their neighbors, listening to them, tending to their wounds. Maybe they'll change them. Maybe they won't. <laughs> but just being able to humanize them gives us more information for how to hold up a vision of a nation that they might be able to see themselves in. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for adding that. And it just makes me think of, You've, taught, you've mentioned this many times, Valerie, this importance of stories of listening and of hearing each other's stories. And that was one thing that you had and you opened and closed with in Divided We Fall. It said, stories can save us, can bind us, can break us open, can make us human to each other. Stories can change how we see. Stories can break down the wall, dividing us from them. So just to reiterate that, that value, sometimes it feels like maybe that's small to listen to each other's stories. But then I hear you speak, and this has been a theme actually throughout so many of the conversations I've had for this series is the importance, the need, the, the necessity of sharing our stories and hearing our stories. I think that revolutions don't only happen in those big, grand public moments, but in those spaces where people are coming together to inhabit a new way of being, a new way of being together. And if we can root our communities in 
listening to stories and telling our stories and sharing our stories, it's one way to start to change how we see each other, to see no stranger. It's one way to live into that new way of being. Beautiful. Okay. So I'm going to go into this last part. And at the very end, I ask one last question, but before I do that, is there anything that I haven't asked you that feels like, oh, that I really need to speak to this? You know, when I was a little girl, I always had um, Dr. King's voice in my ear. Um, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And Dr. King never told us exactly what shape that arc was going to take, but I always had this like the straight line in my mind, you know, that my grandparents sacrificed so that, that I would be more free and that we would sacrifice so that my children would be more free. And that story of history began to come apart, certainly after 9-11 and definitely after the 2016 election when I became a new mother and hate violence was just as high as it was as when I started as an activist. I had to reckon with the fact that my children were growing up in a country more dangerous for them as little brown children with long hair as it was for me or more dangerous than it even was for my grandfather when he arrived a century ago. And so that story of American progress had to die in me. And I began to think of a different metaphor. If we think about the story of America as one long labor, and if we think about America as a nation that's not dead, but a nation still waiting to be born, and the progress during birthing labor then is cyclical, not linear. It is cyclical. And every turn through the cycle, it feels like, you know, we're in a cycle right now. It feels like 1968. It feels like 1992. And yet every turn through the cycle opens up a little bit more space for equality and justice and liberation than there was before. There are more people now rising up for racial justice than ever before. And every turn through the cycle gets us a little bit closer to what is wanting to be born. And so here's the thing, Daphne, I don't know how many more turns through the cycle it's going to take. I just know that in this turn through the cycle, just like um, the body and labor, we carry ancestral memories for how to show up to the labor, how to breathe and how to push. And so if I can be breathing and pushing through love and with love, then maybe I can leave my children information for how to show up when their turn through the cycle comes. Beautiful. And actually some of what you, this is a perfect segue actually, because some of what you just shared was in a video that went viral and received like over 30 million views. And you can watch it on Valerie's website, which is where I was just going to direct you. And I've shown it to so many people and showed it to my husband. And he, I first, I watched, I cried, then he cried, then my daughter cried. Like it's such a good <laughs> video. It's only six and a half minutes. And um, so you can find it. Well, there's, so I'm going to direct you to two places and they kind of connect to, well, they totally connect to each other. The first one is seenostranger.com and seenostranger, that's where you can learn everything about the book 
and the book if book clubs are happening when this is released any book clubs but any events around the book see no stranger and i just have to say for myself i had mentioned this to valerie before starting that this book it's just so good you just have to read it like i don't say that about a lot of this book is so good it has it i highlighted it like all over it's it's ridiculous <laughs> and i am already i've told so many people about it my husband's about to read it then my daughter's going to read it like it is just it's it's great so please please read it and then um you'll also see there you can go to valeriecore.com or see no strangers kind of part of it but and that's valerie v a l a r i e k a u r.com if you want to watch the video and see all the other things that are is happening in Valerie's life and in everything with revolutionary love. So that's a great place to just learn all about the work that Valerie is creating with revolutionary love. And then the next piece is a gratitude. Now, typically I do not have a, a gratitude prepared and it really comes out of the moment in the interview, but I'm actually going to read something from your book because so it's going to be a little bit on the longer side. It's just, it's like a page. Um, but I, it just felt so right. So I'll be reading to you from your own words. Mm-hmm. Um, once when I was still a student, I had a lucid dream while under acupuncture needles on Valerie Corville's if I'm saying it right. Treatment table. I was falling through layers of consciousness until I landed with a thud. I saw a boy sitting and dangling his legs, his back to me. I threw my arms around the boy's shoulders. I thought it was Sherat, who was her husband, but his shoulders were tiny. I leaned down to see who it was. A little boy in a red jumper smiled at me, and I was overcome with a love so intense that it enveloped both of us. I had never experienced such bright intensity before. Who are you? I asked, but I already knew he was my son. I'd always wanted a daughter, yet here he was. The boy saw that I was afraid. He transformed into a 40-year-old man before my eyes and smiled at me. I looked into his aged face and felt the same radiant love. He was showing me that it would be okay. He returned to his child self. I savored being with him. I wanted never to leave him. And when he began to disappear, every fiber in me cried out, no. You have to find me, I heard him say. You have to find me. And he was gone. My eyes opened. It was unlike any dream I had had. I did not know whether it was my subconscious easing my fear of having a son or a visit from another realm or both. I just wanted to return to him. Seven years later, Kavi came into the world. I stopped thinking about the dream. One night when Kavi was three years old, I was busy wrestling him into his pajamas on the bed. Suddenly he stopped his squirming and babbling and looked at me. Have you found me? I stopped and looked at him. Well, I had to look for you and then I found you. How are you found me? Kavi asked with the same gentle inflection. Well, we moved across the country and went all the way to to the star nursery, I said. How you found me? He asked again. Appa and I found you together, I said. Only then was he satisfied. Falling asleep that night, Kavi put his hand on my cheek. This is the mommy I wanted, he said. And I read that because I thought, okay, 
my gratitude is that's the mommy he wanted. You're the woman and the sage warrior that we need. And I am so grateful for who you are and the work you do and the, and the way you are changing the world that we live in. And I have one last question. I don't know if I can answer it because I'm just sitting here with tears going on my face. <laughs> well, we get to pause for a minute, but I will ask, and it is, and I'm going to ask it. It's always the same question, but you have a quote from Howard Zinn, and it speaks perfectly to this. So I will ask the question, but I'm re read the quote first. The future is an infinite succession of presence, and to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. So what does that look like, that living now in the way we think human beings should live? And of course, we've touched on this throughout the interview, but, but what do you see as that world? I think the only way to answer it is by sh reading what comes next after that story <laughs> that you just shared. Do you want me I, to read it or you're going to? I'm going to read it. Okay, great. I don't know how love works beyond life and death. Some moments strike me in such wonder that I let myself fall into the glass blower's breath, the smog. All I can do is hold on to the vision of the world longing to be, a world where every child feels found and every person is beloved, a world where we can look upon any face, even those we might fear, and find recognition. A world where we beckon each other to return to love. This work belongs to all of us, not just women or mothers. We all have the ability to participate in this great love story. Imagine the stories we tell, the institutions we will build, and the lives we will lead when we affirm that every person is a person. Imagine the world we will birth when we see no stranger. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Valerie. I just want to thank you so much. Like I, I have a couple of reasons. I did like 37 events in 18 days after the book was released. And I've had so many conversations in a, a concentrated period of time. And no one has shown up with the depth of understanding and knowledge and attention as you have. It felt like I was not just seen, but honored by how deeply you worked, you had worked before this moment to understand my work and to understand these stories and to hold this book in your arms. Thank you, Daphne. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Beyond Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists and makers, you can head on over to DaphneCohn.com. You can follow the podcast and everything else beyond on Instagram at Daphne Cohn. And you can support the podcast and the artists on it by going to iTunes Podcasts and subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Thank you for taking a couple minutes of your time to review the podcast. And if you already have reviewed the podcast, Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and thank you for making. Don't, 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 don't,